Welcome to the American Intelligence Media. I'm your host, Douglas Gabriel, also known as Thomas Paine, and I'm here with a very interesting person. This person I first met basically talking on the radio with Double X, and the stories that I've heard, which are certainly confirmable and have certainly been vetted, are truly amazing. So we're going to talk today with Double X about his experience of being a Coast Guard pilot on the southern border with Mexico, basically, supposedly, allegedly, trying to stop drugs coming into this country. Now, when you say drugs coming into this country in the southern border, all of those who know me know that my hair starts on fire. Because I'm, as far as I'm concerned, we are in a war with our, the cartels on our southern border. We know that the Mexican government just elected a president who said that he supported the cartels. We know that we're now finding all kinds of weapons that got there, probably from Fast and Furious through Eric Holder, that are still murdering lots of people. I stopped counting at 10,000 bodies that have been found in mass graves over the last few years from these cartel members who are murdering people right and left. But what really also incenses me is the fact that fentanyl, a drug that is so powerful that you can't even comprehend it, is coming in and they're unregulated fentanyl pills, 10 to 100 times stronger than normal fentanyl, which means that they will kill you. One pill will kill you. And so one capture after the next of these drugs whether it be, you know, uh, the uh, the cocaine, the heroin, the opium, the whatever, the crap. But the one that makes me really upset is fentanyl because they're being produced basically in a pharmaceutical fashion. They're coming across our border to kill us. There can be no other reason that you would send a pill that is a hundred times stronger than heroin unless you're intending to kill them, the people that you're sending it to. So who's sending that? President Trump said, China, stop this. It hasn't stopped. So is China making them or are pharmaceutical companies making them? Is Hezbollah and Hamas, which has a huge foothold in southern uh, uh, South America, are they the ones making them? The point is, coming across our poor southern border is an invasion of drugs that is actually unable to be calculated. And it goes back to what I call the rogue CIA White House, George H.W. Bush. And today, we're going to hear from someone who has been, I'm not even going to give you the details because he's going to give them to you, but who has been right there with the people who are right there, who literally can say, yes, I have direct evidence of this, and also that it was institutionalized. And as I say, it goes right back to the White House. So we're going to hear today about the inside story that Double X has uncovered through talking to Larry Nichols, to talking to many people who are part of the Iran-Contra scandal, all this drugs, and he himself literally did this for the Coast Guard to try to, you know, monitor uh, to make sure drugs don't come into this country. And what he's going to tell you today, if it's what he told me earlier, may shock you. Welcome to the show, Double X. I'm sorry for the long intro. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. I very much appreciate uh, being with you today. Uh, the story is a sordid one, and it's uh, it's really quite shocking, as you mentioned. And it's decades in the making, and it spans several presidencies. And ultimately, the story begins perhaps with the assassination of JFK, because that's when. Uh, 
the powers that be, if you will, demonstrated that with impunity, they can uh, exert policy that's extra constitutional, like the assassination of U.S. president. And it's almost like that opened up the floodgates to all kinds of corruption and racketeering, not the least of which was the grafting and the grifting and the self-enrichment that went on in the drug enterprises that have been happened uh, that have been happening over those decades, even to the present moment, uh, involving uh, departments of the federal government and departments of uh, state jurisdictions in the United States, and even Department of Defense installations. Uh, the story truly is shocking. And as we review this stuff uh, today, uh, Thomas, I think folks will begin to have an appreciation for why we've arrived at this place in the country where we are right now. It's really amazing that it's institutionalized and that the names of the people at the head of these, this, what you, as you call it, rightly so, the CIA enterprise, this, this drug enterprise, right. these are the top people in the country who have uh, state funerals, who we supposedly revere, who right. we act as if these politicians have done nothing wrong, and that is incorrect. So tell yeah, us some of yeah. the sordid details. Well, uh, I was flying uh, Coast Guard Falcon jets uh, as an aviator in the United States Coast Guard through the 1980s. And uh, much of the Coast Guard's mission at that time was drug interdiction flights. And we'll recall that President Reagan uh, had appointed Vice President George H.W. Bush uh, as the drug czar at the time. So uh, flying in patrols off of Southern California out of the uh, air station in San Diego, uh, we patrolled uh, two, three times a day uh, in a Falcon jet ranging down off of Baja, California, off the west coast of uh, California, uh, engaging in visual and radar searches to monitor the traffic on the high seas uh, by actually visually inspecting vessels uh, by descending and what we call rigging the boats, getting down to maybe 200 feet, 150 feet, flying by, seeing who's on the boat, cataloging the progress of that boat over days, weeks, and so forth. Meanwhile, there were helicopters being sent and Quite typically, there would be a helicopter and a Falcon jet in the morning, a helicopter and a Falcon jet in the afternoon, sometimes one in the evening. And over the course of about three years of a tour of duty there, Doug, I was personally involved with at least 300 of those sorties. And the total probably ran to about 2,400 or 2,500 sorties on drug interdiction flights. Now, I might ask you a question. Uh, how many drug busts do you think we, uh, we were able to get during all that time? Well, seeing that every day drugs come across the border and in boats to America, I would assume you captured a lot. Well, the reality is we didn't we didn't make a single drug bust <laughs> in all that time. And you and I both know that pretty soon a, a hog rooting around finds an acorn every once in a while. And honestly, we could see everything that was happening offshore. On one occasion, just as an example to demonstrate this, we had a, a Navy E-2, which has a great big radar on it that's used to uh, look out over the horizon for aircraft carriers, was orbiting above uh, San Clemente Island at, uh, you know, many thousands of feet, somewhere up in the 20,000s. And they were uh, sending us on a vector to the south 
of the San Diego area, some 250 to 260 miles. On this particular day, it was a beautiful day with very high winds, however, which blew out the sea and made the whole sea whitecaps because there was such strong wind. Well, they called that target to us and we went out there to investigate. On our radar, we never saw the target, but they kept calling it to us. Well, they're at 10 miles at 11 o'clock. Now they're at five miles at 11.30. Now they're at four miles at uh, 12 o'clock. And so we descended down as low as we could. And even on that beautiful, bright, sunny day, we couldn't see anything visually. And by that time, we should have easily been able to see whatever vessel was that they were looking at. By the time we got down to a mile, we still didn't see anything. And they said, well, just at 12 o'clock at half a mile, there's your target. And sure enough, out of the white caps of the ocean, we began to see the mast, the metal aluminum mast of a sloop rig sailing vessel with its sails down in the heavy seas and heavy wind uh, bobbing in the ocean. So this Navy E-2 Hawkeye aircraft could easily see 260 nautical miles away that single mast sticking up in the ocean down off of the Mexican Baja Peninsula. So I say that to demonstrate that we could pretty much see everything that was happening offshore. And the fact that we never had a drug bust there is something that I scratched my head about for years, Doug. Well, as you know, I've been participating with Radio Pastor Ernie Sanders on the What's Right, What's Left radio ministry out of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, since 2016 when President Trump was elected uh, to begin the second American Revolution and recover uh, all of the promise of our nation. And uh, we talked about this with one of uh, Pres or, uh, Pastor Sanders' uh, 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 participants in his radio ministry, none other than a gentleman named Larry Nichols. Now, Larry Nichols was involved directly with the Clinton machine politically in Arkansas, which was really just an appendage of the Stevens brother machine. And that was Jackson and Wilson Stevens out of Little Rock. At the time, the Stevens brothers back in the 1980s owned one of the largest underwriting firm, if not the largest underwriting firm west of the Mississippi. Folks even today might still be able to see a blue skyscraper there with Stevens Incorporated on top uh, near the Arkansas River in Little Rock. And Jackson and Wilson Stevens, or Jack and Wit as they were referred to, they were the kingmakers in Arkansas. And they were in league with somebody who was in control of Texas in that whole region. And that group was the Bush family. So the Bushes and the Stevens brothers called what you might, or controlled what you might consider uh, Texarkana. And it was in that element of control and ultimately what became racketeering, uh, that Bill Clinton arose. And Larry Nichols was the man who was chosen to vet Bill Clinton for the Stevens brothers because the Stevens brothers wanted to make him the youngest governor of the country, and then they wanted to elect him president. About this time, President Reagan was, he was faced with a challenge. Legislatively, uh, on a policy basis as the chief executive of our country, as the president of the United States. And that was that at the time, some communists named the Ortega brothers, uh, Daniel and Ramon Ortega, I believe they were, uh, they were the Marxists who took over the government of Nicaragua. They called it the Sandinista government. Well, many patriots in Nicaragua objected to that and uh, fought that. Well, President Reagan certainly didn't want communism to appear in Nicaragua, 
So he found ways to help them, but in the give and take in the Beltway, there was a Democrat congressman from Massachusetts named Edward Boland, with a B, like Bravo, and Edward Boland passed on the House Appropriations Committee every year uh, a rider, if you will, on the appropriations bill uh, to say that there would be no expenditures of U.S. military or U.S. Uh, intelligence agency money in direct support of the Contras fighting the communists in Nicaragua. Well, I think what happened, uh, uh, Thomas, is that basically... Uh, George H.W. Bush was given charge of the drug war, it was, as it was called, to try to find a way to assist the Contras while at the same time complying with the nonsensical policy that, that the uh, Democrats were interested in uh, in Congress. And they came up with something called the Enterprise. And the Enterprise was run through the National Security Apparatus and General Secord and his assistant, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North of the U.S. Marine Corps. And Oliver North set up what became known as this enterprise, and in effect, we now know that the CIA uh, uh, obtained several C-130 transport aircraft from Davis-Monthan Air Force Base, in effect the boneyard for aircraft for the U.S. military in nearby Tucson, Arizona, where thousands of airplanes are stored, refurbished these aircraft, and then used CIA contract pilots to fly M-16 rifles and ammunition and other munitions southbound to Honduras and to Nicaragua so that the Contras could be armed. There was a U.S. Army uh, uh, exercise that was done in Honduras. It took a whole bunch of equipment down there. Uh, that equipment was all left in place in Honduras, and presumably these were ways that they were trying to find ways to help the Contras uh, while at the same time complying with uh, the, uh, the strictures of the Boland Amendment, which was uh, attached as a rider effectively to each of the first years of the Reagan, Reagan presidency, effectively hamstringing his foreign policy. Well, uh, there was two ends to that deal. The C-130s would take the arms down, and in the calculus of what became known as the Iran-Contra affair, the M-16 rifles were valued at about $1,500 with 1,000 or 3,000 rounds of ammunition, and the uh, return was palletfuls of kilos of cocaine valued each at about $1,200. Now, on Pastor Sanders' radio broadcast, uh, Thomas, we... We uh, had an occasion to interview an interesting patriot named Robert Tosh Plumley, And Tosh Plumley was a tall, lanky Texan kid who was in the Texas Air National Guard in the 1950s and was sheep-dipped out of there to become a door kicker on aircraft flying out of South Florida in the late 1950s, 1959 time frame, etc., delivering guns to both Castro, Fidel Castro, and Batista, the Cuban president, at the same time. Tosh Plumley knew both of these gentlemen personally. Later, Tosh Plumley became an aircraft commander, and he saw uh, an interesting chapter develop, as we touched on with the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, that's another story, perhaps, for another program, which is when we try to get down to the bottom of how all these kind of deep state undercurrents began to filter through our government uh, would make an excellent presentation and an inter inter interesting story for folks to understand as we try to recover 
uh, in our country, all the potential that is there for us, even, even at the present moment. But then fast forward to the late 1970s and the early 1980s, Tosh Plumley found himself flying these CIA-obtained uh, US, former U.S. Forestry Service uh, C-130 aircraft and taking the guns down to Honduras and Nicaragua, taking the munitions down and flying the palletfuls of cocaine northbound. So all that time that the Coast Guard Falcon jets and helicopters and so forth on both coasts were out there looking for, uh, you know, uh, shipments of cocaine coming northbound, and not finding a you know a, a straw, uh, Tosh Plumley was literally landing tons of this stuff at U.S. military air bases, like Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, California, in Orange County, like Little Rock Air Force Base, like Little Rock Airport, like in Mena, Arkansas, and Homedale Air Force Base, and in other places. We have other voices that were involved in this situation, including Gene Chip Tatum, who was an Army helicopter pilot and also a pilot of other small aircraft. And he literally flew directly from Colombia to Grand Baha Bahama Island uh, in the Caribbean, landed, refueled there, flew up to Nova Scotia, and then flew from Nova Scotia into Canada below the radar and down into Montana and Wyoming to land on Indian reservations with kilos of cocaine. So did they have diplomatic immunity or were they flying under the radar or how did that go? They were identified by squawks and they were able to come northbound flying over Mexico, overland, from Honduras, from Nicaragua. And they were, were given uh, special access under uh, presumably uh, transponder codes that identified them. Uh, that, that was part of the whole operation. Now, Tosh Plumley told us, and this was published in a 1991-1992 article in a magazine called the San Diego Reader, a weekly, you know, kind of uh, news and commentary magazine that folks see on the newsstands and in public places from time to time in many U.S. cities. And uh, in that article, Tosh detailed uh, that he was landing these tons of cocaine at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. So they'd at night, they'd pull up the C-130, they'd lower the rear ramp. Uh, there was a van parked nearby. Guys in long hair and blue jeans would come onto the airplane. They would slide those palletfuls of cocaine down off the ramp of the C-130, take them in the van into the city and be gone. And uh, there was a man at the time named uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, whose information could be seen on YouTube. And he turned that cocaine into what became known as crack refining it, making it more potent, more addictive, and that fueled a whole epidemic of violence and uh, ruined lives and families in the addiction that happened to the crack cocaine in Southern California and elsewhere. The crack cocaine epidemic in my area took lives of friends of mine, um, and it was absolutely staggering and one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen what a human can become once they become addicted to crack cocaine. Right. So those co kilos of crack cocaine, there appeared to be a, an unlimited uh, appetite for that in the country at $1,200 a kilo. That amounted to billions upon tens of billions and billions of dollars worth of drug, uh, drug traffic coming northbound. This was controlled by the enterprise. 
Now, Larry Nichols has talked with us about this on air with Pastor Sanders and verified everything that we're talking about today, Thomas. Now, it's interesting to know who Larry Nichols is. Larry was a Green Beret who served a couple of tours of duty in Vietnam, was from Arkansas, and was a very politically, and is a very politically astute person. And we've talked with Larry about these things. He became an operative in the Stevens political machine. And he was the man who was actually sent out to vet Bill Clinton uh, to become first attorney general of the state of Arkansas and then a governor. And Larry took him out uh, for breakfast or lunch, whatever it was, and then reported back to the Stevens brothers. And Larry said, Mr. Witt, we've got a problem. Uh, this man will tell a lie as quick as, uh, you know, even if it's easier to tell the truth. Uh, and he's a sexual predator because apparently he was pinching the waitress or something during the meal. Well, uh, Mr. Witt said, okay, well, we'll talk with him, but we want to make him the youngest governor in the country. And soon enough, he became the youngest governor. And after two terms as governor in Arkansas, we'll recall that there was a meeting in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., uh, in Mrs. Harriman's uh, Brownstone condominium. And uh, there, uh, all the Democrat presidential candidates were gathered to decide who would run for president and so Bill Clinton uh, stepped up and became the, uh, the nominee of the party in that meeting in the Democrat Party. And then subsequently was elected president with two terms. All of this was going on. Meanwhile, this enterprise had been in full swing uh, during the latter years of President Reagan's uh, second term. And uh, they were making tons of money hand over fist. Now, Gene Chip Tatum, the Army pilot who had been a former Air Force uh, forward air controller, they called them Maroon Berets, and that was kind of a special forces uh, contingent that the Air Force developed to assist with search and rescue and landing zone operations for extractions and helicopters in Vietnam. He describes in his uh, commentary specific things that he was involved in. Once he found out that there were coolerfuls, and we're talking white kind of fish box, 120-gallon uh, coolers full of, filled with cocaine on his aircraft as he was headed northbound, marked medical organs and taped shut. And Larry or uh, uh, Gene Chip Tatum wasn't the kind of guy to kind of let something get on his airplane without knowing what's in there. So he was able to see all that. He began, began to keep careful notes once he realizes that this was going on on his flight plans. And he filed those flight plans, copies of them, with a Honduran air traffic controller and other people around the world so that there would be a record if he were ever, you know, involved in, in any uh, uh, accident on, uh, with the demanding flying that he was doing, nap of the earth flying in and out of Nicaragua and other countries down there. And uh, he detailed and has talked about in several interviews, including with an Englishman named David Guyatt, on a site called Deep Black Lies, uh, in which, uh, he, and he's been interviewed by a, a former FBI uh, station chief uh, in Los Angeles, Ted Gunderson, who later died of what people believe is arsenic poisoning. There's, there's hour upon hour on YouTube available to see Gene Chip Tatum's interviews with Ted Gunderson, who by and large everybody believes was a very credible and uh, stand-up FBI special agent. And in those interviews, uh, Gene uh, talks about, Chip talks about uh, this drug trade and how he flew uh, some principals down to a meeting in Honduras one day 
including Oliver North, I believe Felix Rodriguez, who was George H.W. Bush's, uh, one of his operatives. And Felix Rodriguez was the guy who tracked down and, and killed Che Guevara. And so it was kind of an interesting crew. Uh, there were members from the Dixie Mafia, as they called them, the Clinton machine, the Stevens Brothers machine that went down to this meeting in Honduras. George H.W. Bush himself apparently went down. It may be that William Weld, who was the deputy attorney general of the U.S. Department of Justice, went down in charge of the criminal division of the division of the DOJ. And uh, at the time, the attorney general was none other than William Barr during the Reagan administration. Now, uh, at that meeting, Gene Chip Tatum became aware, based on some of the crosstalk that happened in the aircraft uh, going and coming, that they were concerned that somebody was skimming the till on the guns for drug operation. And they tracked it to the Arkansas side of the operation. And they decided that they were going to have to pin that on a guy named Barry Seal. Barry Seal had operated, having been a former TWA pilot, an air transportation captain. He operated his own fleet of C-123 transport aircraft and small aircraft uh, in and out of Arkansas from Mena Airport in Arkansas, which is in southwestern Arkansas in the middle of a forest, a, a national forest, I believe it is, and uh, uh, had done a lot of, uh, you know, munitions down to the Contras and a lot of drugs coming northbound, etc. And they decided that they were going to pin this uh, discrepancy in the uh, in the the kitty, if you will, in the operation on Barry Seal. Well, a federal judge got after him and and laid a sentence on him. And ultimately, I believe it was either in Shreveport or Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was uh, given probation for six months and was going to have to report into the Salvation Army every night that had a hostel there, effectively. And that's where he was killed. And he said uh, that that's, this is going to be the end of me. And sure enough, they, they discovered that three members of the Medellin cartel uh, arrived and, and shot him to death with automatic machine pistols. Uh, and that was the end of Barry Seal. And that solved the problem for, uh, for the uh, Stevens brothers and the Clintons with regard to uh, squaring the books, if you will, in the guns for drug operation. But so all this has been going on. And like I say, so you had a whole U.S. military service under the Department of Transportation at the time in the U.S. Coast Guard with a long history of guarding the coast since 1790. Uh, with the Revenue Cutter Service, and then later joining with the Life Saving Service from 1910. And then in times of war, the they told me, at least in uh, officer candidate school, uh, Thomas, that the Coast Guard is that hard nucleus about which the Navy forms in time of war. <laughs> and so, the Navy probably doesn't like to hear it that way. <laughs> yeah. And the Navy would always rejoin. Yeah, they would say, well, the reason all the Coasties are over six feet is because they've got to walk ashore. Oh, <laughs> so, I have great respect for the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah. And the myself. Navy and the Marines. And, uh, and I was a Green Beret myself, 101st Airborne. Oh, very interesting. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's quite impressive. I know. They what, used to kick us out of the plane with a knife in your mouth and say good luck, you know, <laughs> into the ocean, by the way. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, we talked about Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, and there was a, 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 a colonel there. 
and he was basically a poster boy for Marine Corps aviation. He'd flown over 220 combat missions in Southeast Asia and Cambodia and so forth, flying the A-6 Intruder. And folks, if you don't know what that airplane was, that was the most demanding mission you could fly because basically in all weather, even when you couldn't see out the windshield, you'd be flying nap of the earth, flying over ridgelines and so forth, using very sophisticated uh, instrumentation and, and techniques to be able to deliver your bomb load on target. I mean, those guys were do it. That was, that was, that was superhero duty. And so he, he did that 220 odd times. And in addition, he flew the aviate, uh, Harrier, which was the, uh, you know, vertical takeoff and landing jet. And, uh, was just a, like I say, he was a poster boy for Marine, uh, Marine Corps aviation and was no doubt, uh, a rising star and perhaps even a candidate for vice commandant down the road of the Marine Corps, if not even commandant, a very devout, uh, spiritual man, uh, going to church, uh, he found out that the cocaine was being landed at El, at El Toro in January of 1991, I believe it was. And his brother David is a doctor up in Dakota, North Dakota, even now. And he had a gentleman from uh, Southern California uh, do a forensic analysis of what happened. Because it turned out that James Sabo was found in his backyard at, in his officer's quarters on Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, having died from a shotgun blast through his mouth with birdshot with his hunting uh, shotgun uh, uh, in his bathrobe and slippers and pajamas. When, once you did the, when you did the forensic analysis, it was clear that the whole thing was set up. And in fact, he had been murdered because there was a tremendous contusion to the right rear side of his skull in which the, the bone had been broken inward, not outward, by the force of the blow. He was going to take the whole story of the drugs coming uh, on board the uh, air station at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. And by the way, folks, it, now I understand why we never found any drugs offshore. And so he, uh, he was killed because he was going to make all that uh, public in a captain's mast at El Toro, and that wasn't going to be allowed. And within 24 hours of the word being handed down to knock it off, uh, he was dead that morning while his wife was at church, Thomas. Mm -hmm. So uh, so that, that really is the cost of this. We look at all the human cost. There's other things too. I mean, when I flew offshore, I was headed southbound one time on a very high priority drug enforcement uh, mission in a Coast Guard Falcon jet that had been, you know, uh, very well coordinated with the Mexican government, with other units of, uh, in the Coast Guard operation, including a high endurance cutter uh, down off the coast of Baja, a helicopter. We had parts on in the aircraft, uh, a tail, spare tail rotor for a helicopter that was heading down to be replaced on the helicopter on board the high endurance cutter. And we were going to spend uh, basically the better part of a week down there doing a thorough search off of Baja and uh, ranging out to some distance and then with the helicopter intermediately uh, flying on targets, etc. Well, uh, just about halfway down Baja, we got an emergency locator transmitter signal which is an indication that somebody's in distress. Now, sometimes they're a false alarm, and a lot of times they were back then. 
And so we wondered what to do because we were the so-called ready aircraft for search and rescue response. We called back to the base, even though we had had you know weeks worth of clearance. Uh, at that time, and it may still be, the Mexican government is untrust, untrusting of the U.S. government, really, with military aircraft, U.S. military aircraft, and only five U.S. military aircraft were allowed in their any, airspace at any one time with prior coordination. You had to go through the consulate in D.C., down to the consulate in Mexico City, and back and so forth to get your, your uh, flight plans uh, approved and timed uh, uh, for arrival. So all these plans had been carefully laid. We had top secret information on the aircraft with us. It was going to go to the high endurance cutter. It was a big deal. And when we found that somebody was in distress offshore, it was our obligation statutorily for search and rescue offshore to investigate and answer the call to duty. So we quickly called back to the base and told them what was going on. And they hemmed and hawed and bumped the thing up to the rescue coordination center. And ultimately it was decided that we'd be diverted to that mission. Then, Shortly into that diversion, uh, they took us back off and let us go back to our high-priority drug enforcement mission. The next morning, we found out that 10 U.S. citizens died on a beautiful sunny day on the 5th of February, 1987, uh, in the ocean off of Baja due to exposure, you know, succumbing to hypothermia in the water after 10, 12 hours of exposure. Only two survived. So, if we were you know, turned away from our statutory responsibility, this is further cost for all, and, you know, destruction and death to, uh, with the American people to deal with this drug situation. So that was kind of the chapter of the cocaine uh, uh, enterprise that is even ongoing to this day. There's just new players involved. Uh, Newsweek reported on December the 18th last year that 250 tons of cocaine has come through Venezuela into this country that was earmarked for Hamas, which folks may remember is the Islamic resistance in Palestine. What on earth are they doing shipping cocaine into the United States? Now, that cocaine, 250 tons, if you value that at, say, $150 an ounce, that's $34 billion worth of product. This was during the Obama administration. And if you cut that by 50%, well, you're talking about $68 billion worth of product. And so the thinking is that there's a continuing ongoing, you know, uh, uh, racket that happens uh, that people are making a lot of money with. Tons of money. So much money that it becomes hard to even uh, try to find a way to, to, to put it somewhere. And in fact, that's what the Clintons did in Arkansas. They established a whole government agency in the state of Arkansas called the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, the ADFA, which had been given a charter of, a, of, uh, of uh, doing low-interest loans for construction to schools and churches. And I don't think ever, there was ever a loan to schools and churches. But Larry Nichols, who uh, involved in all of this activity, as we touched on, uh, coming back from Vietnam as a Green Beret and being involved in the Stevens Brothers political machine, and then asked by Oliver North to go down and train Contras and fight alongside and lead them in the battle against the communists, doing whatever they could to fight the communists. Ultimately, something bad happened down there, and Larry tells us about it. And ultimately, his uh, family said, listen, can you come home and do a job where you don't have to get shot at anymore? So he took a break and went to Bill Clinton, who, of course, is, you know, deeply part of the 
Stevens Brothers machine. And Bill says, yeah, you can be the uh, marketing director for the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. So Larry dutifully goes in and studies for his job. First couple months, stays late, reads the books, try to figure out what's going on. And ultimately, as he read the books, he realized all these loans are going out the door, but nobody's making any payments back. Ultimately, then, he ended up asking the uh, financial officer of the organization, uh, the, the agency, uh, how come nobody's making any loan payments back? And the, and the CFO said to him, well, I thought you knew they don't. What had happened is they'd set up a whole laundering mechanism for all those cocaine receipts to go through. And the political contributors to Bill Clinton, including, I believe, the Tysons and others, a man named Dan, Dan Lasseter, was kind of riding a herd on all of these loans. Uh, folks that applied for the loans went through the Rose Law Firm in Little Rock, where Hillary Clinton was a partner. And for each application she submitted to the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, she'd get a $55,000 retainer. So it was the grifting thing. And this is what the Clintons did from the very beginning in Arkansas through their whole presidency. And Hillary Clinton even did the same thing in 2012 with the Uranium One deal, uh, allowing 20% of U.S. uranium production to actually end up in control of, uh, of uh, Russian oligarchs, Rosatom, etc., through the Uranium One deal and the Clinton Juster Foundation bundling money from the, the Russians to send it down through uh, Canadian nonprofit law where it can be de-identified and they don't have to report where it comes from into tens of millions of dollars to go directly down into the Clinton Foundation in New York City. These are the rackets that are ongoing even to this day over and over again. Well, that that's kind of getting ahead of the story a little bit, but Larry Nichols uh, ended up having to uh, to call a halt to it all because what he observed is that Bill Clinton was having cocaine parties at the governor's mansion while governor in Arkansas. He and Dan Lasseter and Bill Clinton's brother Roger had guest quarters where they'd have ashtrays full of cocaine and they would bring young girls in there and get them hooked on cocaine. And ultimately Larry said, that's enough. And he drove over to the governor's mansion and said, Bill, we're going to have to do something about this. I'm going to give you two weeks to shut this down. We just can't be getting young girls involved in all this nonsense. That day, driving home, he turned on the radio and heard on a news report that the Arkansas Development Finance Authority marketing director was under suspicion of embezzlement. The Clintons work very quickly. <laughs> Get out in front of that narrative. Yeah. And, and when you mentioned, I just want to underscore this, Harriman, okay, uh, Harriman Brown Brothers, they and, and Prescott Bush, okay, they're all the same group. And they were Hitler's financiers. And then what happened? They chose Bill Clinton, a Rhodes Scholar, to be their boy. Mm -hmm. It was chosen by the Harrimans. Right. And then what happened? There was never any rivalry between the Clintons and the Bushes. The Clintons are members of the Bush family, but the Bushes learned uh, through Hillary Clinton's dad who was a mob boss in Chicago, uh, some of their strong-arm tactics. But now we do know that, of course, the Bushes, with Jeb Bush in Florida and uh, Baby Bush, as I call him, George W. Bush, in Texas, who's a coke addict also. Uh, and then his dad, who was the head of the CIA, and then when he became the vice president, nobody seemed to ever, ever make reference to that, though his Zapata oil were the listening stations for the CIA during the Bay of Pigs and during the time that we were watching Cuba. So right. George H.W. Bush was crooked with oil, then he was crooked with 
drugs and 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 um, gun with particularly weapons, but then he created the Vulcans. General Secord was part of the Vulcans. And what did they do? They brought down the USSR by attacking them through predatory economics. And then it was Jonathan Bush through his bank here in America and a bank in, in Russia that they basically ripped off the USSR. That's what caused the wall to fall, not anything that Reagan did. Because remember, George H.W. Bush tried to have Reagan assassinated so that he could become the president. And it's everybody knows this. It's, it's so clear that he went from oil to drugs and guns. And then when he got out of being the president, he and then manipulating economies. And George Soros was part of that first attack on USSR, as, as well as uh, Leo Wanta. He did it again later with a group called um, Far West, which were the Vulcans simply that continued after he was no longer the president, George H.W. Bush. And they worked out of Azerbaijan and Silkway Airways was the number. Everyone, this has been found so many times. When you're running guns, what do you look for? A Silkway Airlines plane out of Azerbaijan because Mm -hmm. the Azerbaijani Chamber of Commerce is where the Vulcans worked. And they're still working from there now. And you have some of the same members continuing on because they just folded into George from Daddy Bush to Baby Bush. And now they're still around, and they're actually, some of them, being brought back into D.C. as if we have no memory, kind of like an Oliver North. What does he get? He gets his own television show. Okay, so when you are a total criminal and everybody knows it, and you don't really get prosecuted like the Bushes and the Clintons and Brown Brother Harriman and and, uh, Prescott Bush and Jonathan Bush, what happens to those people? Nothing happens. They get rewards. Let's remember that the Bush family, when they started with oil, they were so bad that their pump and dump system uh, that was taught to them by Edwin Pauly had to be basically underwritten by who? By the the, the Saad family, the the people who basically are, that's what Saudi Arabia is named after, King Saad and his family gave the money to Baby Bush and to Daddy Bush again and again for their oil um, scams, you'd call it. And basically, Baby Bush was never a success at anything, not even the Air National Guard. He was a cocaine addict. We know that he was a cocaine addict. He had failed two uh, drug tests in a row, and the third one he got kicked out, so he didn't take that one, but he still showed up high that day. This was all well known. Dan Rather got fired for revealing this, if you remember. It was on the news because he didn't have three sources. He didn't need three Mm -hmm. sources. Mm -hmm. And now we don't need any sources. Everything's anonymous sources. So this is a known history. Iran-Contra is nothing... uh, It's similar to Eric Holder's Fast and Furious. And it's similar to Hillary Clinton's emolument crimes of giving weapons to only countries who donated to her when she was a secretary of state to her foundation and you mentioned uranium one and you mentioned frank juster which is uh, and the canadian foundation the juster clinton uh sustainability yeah. fund no one no one mentions that but if when they say 145 million directly paid to the clinton foundation for uranium one incorrect 345 million because 200 million was given to this other fund directly to bill from frank Justra. So this kind of corruption we know. We know that the opium fields in Afghanistan are protected by us. I remember when Obama came out 
and literally said, I mean, when he when this was said, and I tried not to watch for eight years any news because it would upset me because the things he did were so illegal and criminal. But he literally said, we're going to have to let the Afghanis keep their opium harvest this year because they need the money. And where did that money, where did the opium go? It was turned into heroin in their factories. It was given to the CIA and it was brought to, into America through the southern border. This is very well known and the enterprise has many, many companies now. It's not just one company and it's not just Afghani heroin. It's not just fentanyl made in probably rogue CIA labs is what I'm speculating. It's not just Hamas and Hezbollah getting their share of bringing the drugs up from South America through the caravans and through the open borders. But I would have to ask this question. Why doesn't the CIA, who knows all of this, that's their job to stop it, why do they never stop it? Why do we... No, it's only the DEA who ever finds out any of this. It was all planned ahead of time. So if you and I know this, you know the people involved, we know exactly where it's happening, we know that the opium fields are growing the opium to turn into heroin to bring it into this country to basically kill Americans. Why can't it stop? That's my question to you, Double X. Why can't this stop? Is it so institutionalized that it can't be stopped? Well, I think no. I think the answer is that the way we get to this, believe it or not, is a spiritual revival. We have to raise the consciousness of every American in this country so that they can recover what is the understanding of what the intention was in this country to begin with, which was, of course, a limited government constitutional republic with an ethic uh, of Matthew seven twelve, do unto others as you wish done unto you in a government that is popular in nature where the people are sovereign. With all that said, uh, it's going to be an education thing for folks to understand, which is, of course, why we have the occasion today to talk about this stuff, to truly understand what uh, tremendous levels of control, of self-enrichment, of uh, off-appropriations uh, projects, uh, have run amok for literally decades in this country. And you've done a good job of, of summing up the present circumstance with the border. Uh, there's one little addition there. And of course, we touched on Hamas, but we have information to show that uh, Islamic fundamentalists, jihadists, are involved with the drug cartel. They're involved with the human trafficking, just like the drug cartels are. As you said, AMLO, the currently, quote, uh, elected, unquote, president of Mexico, an avowed uh, Marxist who said that it's uh, hands off and uh, the the season has closed on the cartel, uh, we've found out that the whole Mexican government is compromised. We look at uh, the uh, testimony of, uh, of Tosh Plumley. Uh, Tosh is a patriot, and he just kind of did what he thought was important for the country, uh, during the Kennedy assassination, during Iran-Contra, and in the present moment. And Tosh has reported going across the border south of Las Cruces, New Mexico, and seeing a barn full of brand new M16 rifles and other munitions. Same thing was reported, I believe, across the border from McAllen, Texas, about 300 brand new M16 rifles in a facility there. Both those facilities, one south of Las Cruces, one south of McAllen, Texas, were not under the control of the Mexican military. 
Now, nominally, those brand new M16 rifles and the other munitions were part of a commerce deal that was made with the U.S. in which they sold about $3 billion worth of munitions to the Mexican army. So this tells us that the Mexican army is fully compromised because those guns are outside of their control in barns, basically, that they're not even patrolling, that they're not even guarding. And that tells us that, that the Mexican federal government is compromised. And it's well known among persons in the communities that the only patriotic corps that's left in Mexico right now is the Mexican Marines. They have not succumbed to the pressures of the drug lords. They're the one hope for Mexico, which obviously is overdue for some kind of revolution. You mentioned all the death and destruction that's happening south of the border, Doug. Uh, keeping track of this down in Southern California is a gentleman who says that the Mexicans are on track to have their worst year ever, perhaps as many as 40,000 people murdered in this turf war of the cartels. There's been literally hundreds of political candidates assassinated because they were trying to run for office and stand up and be honorable and oppose the lawlessness of the cartels. All of this is meant in a larger scale uh, to destabilize our southern border because there's so much money, human trafficking, drugs coming through that border, so much money that needs to be laundered, and there are such forces in the Beltway, even in the U.S. Congress, who are making such tons of money about, on this. Uh, think about President Obama for a minute. Didn't he just buy a house on Martha's Vineyard that's worth $15 million? Yeah, it's the biggest house. And yes, it's the largest house, most expensive house. His fifth house, and we pay for it. And we pay up to $5 million a year for security on each of his houses. Interesting. Well, Joel Gilbert, filmmaker out of L.A., did a, a documentary on uh, President Obama's past, and he grew up as uh, Barry Sotero uh, in Hawaii as a, as a drug pusher as a young man. Oh, yeah. All the people at Punahou, because I taught at Punahou, and I was part of the uh, Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, and I knew the people, and I knew the people... Uh, I knew people who knew the people who were there. And basically what they're saying is there's a huge incongruency in his age and when he entered the school. Secondly, he was a third string basketball player who was so bad because he couldn't show up unless he was high on marijuana or cocaine. He was the cocaine dealer for Punahou, which is one of the most expensive private schools in America. How did his mother afford that? Now, we can go into that. We might want to do a show on that. But, you know, Barry Sotero is, he's passe, but it shows the corruption that can happen. He closed his own personal records now, hasn't he? And he hasn't opened them up again. And his own personal presidential library, as we predicted, it may never be opened. Why? Because he got $2 billion for it, and that's in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And he chose the most controversial piece of land in all of Chicago to make his library and took it away from the poor people, the only park they have. And so it's, he knew it would go into court and that it could be in court forever because now you cannot get a, anything from his eight-year term from the National Archivist because it's in boxes and they don't know where it is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. These are the, the twists and turns that continue to happen. And so we, we fleshed out the totality of the depravity with the cocaine trade that's, go, that's ongoing uh, over all these decades. We fleshed out the 
the opioid crisis, as President Trump called it in the 2016 campaign up in New Hampshire, that's ongoing. And honestly, uh, all of this began even before the cocaine stuff. But you know, you're right. The answer is an answer in consciousness, or you pointed out, it's really a spiritual answer. And here's the answer. It's very simple. Your body is the temple of God. It is divine. Don't put drugs in it and don't even allow those drugs to be created ever. Why would they? A, a fentanyl that will kill anyone who takes it? Uh, crack cocaine? I mean, first off, we have to have respect for the human being again. When you have this institutionalized type of evil, it simply denigrates the human body until it is nothing more than something to consume the drugs that will support cartels. This hmm. has to be turned. We have to put the respect of science, of politics, of economics, of everything back into the realm of the human being, into the human being's heart. And on in that heart is a throne. And on that throne sits your divine being that you believe in. And if you truly believe in that being, you're not going to put that stuff in your body, whether it be vaccines, inoculations, pharmaceutical drugs, whether it be uh, cigarettes or even refined sugar or any of the poisons that are on every street corner in America. So folks, if you think the government's there to protect you, you're incorrect. The government is bringing these things into America to attack the temple of your body. And so I want to thank you for that, Double X, and I want to thank you for your service for America in the Coast Guard, though you really didn't have to encounter too many uh, drug uh, problems or drug cartels because we were protecting them. Pelosi and her gang, the second... Mexico had a new president. She went down and got her payoff. Newsom in California has gone down to get his payoff immediately from the Mexican president. And then he went to the Northern Triangle and got his payoff from there. And you can see him doing these interactions. These people are being paid off to keep the border open so drugs can pour in. And sorry to have to say this, for the human trafficking, the people in the streets in California, who are those people? Those are the people they let across the border. And every once in a while, have you noticed a million or so of them just will disappear? They, they're there for a while. They have tent cities. You have so many people living on the street in California, and then all of a sudden they're gone. Where did they go? That's called human trafficking. That is what Newsom and Pelosi, that's what Schiff and the rest of them in California do. This is very well known. The drugs with the rogue CIA, that was the Zodiac killer. Those, that was the drug shipments coming in, going to the Hells Angels and others who were running the drugs for them, as you have described some of this drug running going on. But this drug running goes to the top. These are pharmaceutical companies who are trying to kill you. If you think for one second that the people who developed the poisons, the 70, actually there's 70 to 200 different poisons in cigarettes. Poisons. I'm not talking about additives. I'm talking about poisons. Uh, formaldehyde, uh, polonium-210. We're talking about radioactive substances put into cigarettes. And when we brought a lawsuit against them, what did they do? They went to their home. They went to Britain and became British America Tobacco, so we can't sue them anymore. And yet, what happens 440,000 people are directly killed by cigarettes every year, and you need to multiply that times five if you want to know the real number in America alone. So your government isn't here to protect you from the criminals trying to cross the southern border. They 
pay those criminals to cross the southern border to bring those drugs in. And this is a fact. And I, having worked in the inner city, uh, in, in some of the worst scenarios you can possibly imagine, I can tell you that the damage that's going on here is in many cases irreparable and it is being done consciously by politicians to their own constituencies quite consciously. And I can name names if you want, but I don't don't really want to do that. But I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for bringing this to our light, to the light and bringing it to our consciousness and also for jumping into the thick of all of this and figuring it out because many people are confused by this and you have made more sense of it than anybody I know because of your direct experience and because of the research you've done. So thank you so much, Double X, for being with us today. My pleasure, Doug. A great pleasure to be with you on this subject.